Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. It's the most wonderful time of the this episode will drop on the winter solstice, December 21st. Yule, my holiday this time of year, among all the many other holidays people observe near the end of December. So I guess it's appropriate that this episode gets a little spookier than usual. If you've only heard the words Yule and Yuletide in connection with Christmas, you might find it kind of odd or even inappropriate that I'd be so into ghosts right now. But that's just because you don't really know what Yule is about. You see, it's not just another name for Christmas, as you've probably been led to believe. Yule is a much more ancient idea. Its origins are lost, you know, somewhere in the centuries before Christianity ever reached Europe. It's a holiday that acknowledges and celebrates darkness, which is no great surprise given that it takes place on or around the winter solstice, the day of the year when the greatest number of hours are spent in the dark, with the sun feeling very far away, very feeble, very unconcerned with the needs of these fragile little humans here on Earth. And the further north you go, the more pronounced is this effect. And yes, of course, we all know, as our ancestors knew, that the light would return, that the day that follows Yule will be a little bit longer, a little bit brighter, and this will be true of every day to come, up until the summer solstice, when the cycle of dark encroaching on light and light swallowing dark begins all over again. But knowing this doesn't make Yule any less dark and cold. It doesn't make the winter you still have to live through any less barren or less dead. So is it any wonder that Yule is the day of the year which my ancestors in Northwestern Europe associated most closely with the ghosts? This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Do you ever get scared? Do you ever get the creeps? Maybe you have the creeps right now. Are you afraid of monsters? Of haunted houses? Of the dark? This is the Creeps Machine. The tie between real, actual, ancestrally practiced Yule and ghosts, or other supernatural entities, persists to this day, even in heavily secularized Christmas. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Andy Williams song, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, right? With the lyric that says, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. Well, that song was written in 1963, 
By that time, the only ghost story that was still associated with Christmas was Dickens's A Christmas Carol, in which, famously, three ghosts visit Ebenezer Scrooge and teach him how to not be such a capitalistic dickhead all the time. Dickens, of course, was writing in Victorian-era England, and back then the tradition of telling ghost stories around Christmas time was still holding on a little bit, though it wasn't as strong a tradition as it once had been. In Dickens's time, it was, like, charmingly old-fashioned to bring ghosts into Christmas, and that, in part, was why Dickens found so much success with his Christmas-centered works. By incorporating that spooky flavor of old-fashioned Yule, he tapped into the Victorian penchant for both nostalgia and weirdness at the same time. And there are more ways in which modern, secular Christmas harkens back to the ancient traditions of Yule and similar traditions. Santa Claus, like his line of descent, if you will, can be traced directly and very obviously to one of the most important gods in old Germanic and Norse paganism, which is Odin, who would sometimes ride through the sky with hosts of spirits pursuing his prey in this supernatural feat known as the Wild Hunt. Uh, if you were unfortunate enough to witness the Wild Hunt, it might portend your death, or, you know, maybe you would just be abducted into the spirit realm. And the Wild Hunt, with its close association with death and the spirit world, was much more likely to be seen by mortal humans on the night of the winter solstice, the darkest night of the year. And later, this concept of a white-bearded god flying through the sky on the night of winter solstice merged with certain shamanistic winter solstice practices among the Sami people. The Sami are one of the indigenous tribes of Northern Europe including the presence of reindeer and sleds and the red and white colors of Santa's costume. By the way, there's this really great video you can find on YouTube called Santa is a Psychedelic Mushroom. Uh, it's on the Atlantics channel. Definitely watch it this holiday season. It is a ton of fun. It's got some really great animation and it's only like six or seven minutes long. And I promise you, you will find it both entertaining and thought-provoking. It's great. Anyway, the point here is that long before Christianity colonized Europe, there were deep and important stories surrounding the darkest night of the year. Deep and important traditions. And echoes of those ancient folkways have persisted through the centuries and remain with us, even today. One of those traditions holds that the boundary between the ordinary, mundane, objective world of human reality grows thinner at certain points. Sometimes so thin that there's, like, no separation between this world and other worlds. Those points of thinness can exist in either place or time, or both, I suppose. And when you reach a point in time or space where the boundary between worlds is thin, there's a greater potency to magic. Or to state that in another way, in a way that might appeal more to a person who esteems and prioritizes rationality, there's more chaos and less order at these points of thinned boundaries. So Yule, with its distinctive feature of being composed much more of darkness than of light, is one of the most magically potent or one of the most chaotic days of the year. And therefore, according to these ancient Yuletide folkways, the spirits can move more easily between their world and ours on the night of the winter solstice. All this is to say that there have been some developments with my spectral roommate, the ghost in my kitchen, which I've talked about in previous episodes, and Yule seems like the perfect day of the year to share these developments with you. Enter the door to darkness. 
I recorded the conversations you hear in this podcast on season one back in mid-September, shortly after I moved into my new home up here in beautiful British Columbia, Canada, the greatest nation on earth. Don't at me, I will fight you with all the passion and energy of a grateful new immigrant. Anyway, in the roughly three months since I first encountered the kitchen ghost, the sightings uh, have been growing more frequent. I see this thing with fair regularity now. And usually when I see it, I just catch it in my periphery and then, like, I turn my head to look more closely, there's nothing there. Of course, this is a very common experience and it's nothing to hang any real significance on, I get that. Like, who hasn't had experiences where you think you see something out of the corner of your eye, but then when you turn to look directly at it, it's nothing. Or you misinterpreted the shape of a very mundane and ordinary object. So while I think it's a little weird that I only ever think I see a person out of the corner of my eye when I walk past my kitchen, it doesn't happen anywhere else in the whole apartment. It's also not especially astonishing. I mean, mistaking something caught out of the corner of my eye, nothing I get too excited about. But recently, all the residents of the Haunted Mansion got together to decorate this big, beautiful house we all get to share for the holidays. And then we all gathered in the apartment of my downstairs neighbors, Bev and Morgan. And we shared a lovely dinner and had such a great time talking and getting to know one another. It was wonderful. But eventually, that evening, our conversation turned toward the ghost. What makes a haunted house? Because all the residents of this house have experienced this thing, this entity in our homes that is undeniably there and yet not there at the same time. We started comparing notes about where specifically each person had seen or heard the ghost, and we discovered this entity manifests within a vertical column of space that happens to run through three of our apartments. The residents of the fourth apartment haven't seen it, though they have heard sounds that were very difficult to explain through any ordinary means. Now, the house is divided up in such a way that you have two first floor apartments, right and left, and then two apartments that occupy the second and third stories of the mansion. My home is one of the upper apartments, and it's situated on the right side of the house. My neighbor Bridget lives with her family on the left side of the upper floor, except that one bedroom in her apartment extends over to the right side of the house, and that room is situated directly above my kitchen. So there's this vertical plane that runs from the bedroom of Bridget's teenage daughter on the third floor, through my kitchen on the second floor, and down into the guest bedroom in Bev and Morgan's place on the first floor. And this space, this column, is where the ghost appears. Why does it only show up in this narrow band of space that runs through three different homes? I have no idea. All I know is that when I'm physically inside that plane, in that vertical shaft of space, not just passing by the kitchen, but actually inside the kitchen, sometimes I can see the ghost. Like, not from the corner of my eye. I can look directly at it. Kind of. I can see it in a way that's really, really hard to describe. When you look, there are explanations for spooks in the dark. I've always felt like I can tell when people are sharing genuine paranormal experiences and when they're making shit up or heavily exaggerating an otherwise real experience for the sake of attention. And I think partly that's because uh, I'm a storyteller and I work with story. I've dedicated my life to story 
I get the intricacies and subtleties of narrative in ways most people aren't so conscious of. I think about story in different ways. I think about story, period, where, you know, most people don't think about it. Story is just something they respond to by instinct. So I think I'm able to tell when someone's faking or exaggerating a paranormal experience because it has too many qualities of story. It's too pat. It's too rational. You know, like it follows a narrative arc and there's a kind of rationality to the story. I keep coming back to that, which seems funny to talk about in conjunction with ghosts, but there's this kind of rationality to the story that might be thrilling and intriguing to listen to, but it's also not the way actual weird experiences feel. Anyone who's ever had a genuine paranormal experience will tell you very little about it makes sense. It doesn't follow expected lines of narrative, and that's why it's so unsettling. So some of the things I'm about to say will not make sense, uh, particularly because I have a very hard time putting this experience into words, and I'm someone who does nothing else with my life but convert experience into words. So believe me when I tell you, like, I know this doesn't make sense. I know you're going to be shaking your head when I say, I've begun seeing the ghost more often, but I also don't see it at all. Here's what it's like to look directly at the ghost. Are you ever afraid of the dark? When you see shadows on your walls? Do you imagine something bad outside your windows? For some reason that makes no sense to me. It's always yellow and black. And it's this very distinctive and specific shade of yellow, like almost an amber. I would call it gamboge, which will only make sense to you if you've had some experience with painting, but it's like, it's like a warm, bright yellow. It appears in the shape of a human torso, shoulders, chest, like a suggestion of arms, like the upper arms, exactly at the height a human torso should be at if that person's like standing up or walking around in your kitchen. It's a dense, dense black at the bottom of this apparition, and the black area grades into that weirdly bright and saturated shade of yellow at the chest and shoulder area. And then where the head and face should be, there's nothing. Kind of. I know it has a head and face, I just can't see its head or its face. Like, I don't see the head the same way I see the chest and shoulders, the way I see the black and yellow colors with my eyes. It's like my eyes won't pick up any data from the place where the head and the face should be, but my brain is picking up that data. Like, like somehow the concept of this apparition's head bypasses my eyes and goes directly to my brain. Or like some sense other than the visual is transmitting data about the head and face to my brain. I can't tell you anything about what this entity's face looks like, but I do know it has a face. I know it's there. My brain tells me its face is there. I know its features are what most people would call masculine because, again, that's what my brain is seeing even if my eyes don't see anything, even if I'm only conscious of, like, a blankness where the face should be. That's the best I can do to describe what it looks like and what it feels like to look at a ghost. Your imagination is the key to the creeps machine. It makes you scared of things you do not know. 
It continues to be non-threatening though. Like I continue to be unafraid of this guy, even though I've begun seeing it in my kitchen so often that it's like almost mundane at this point. It doesn't appear to be conscious of me at all. Like I'm not sure the ghost and I exist on the same plane in the same reality. I'm not even sure it's a ghost in the way most people understand that word. Like I think most people hear the word ghost and they think of the soul of a dead person who used to be alive here in our reality and is not alive anymore, yet somehow the essence of that person is still like walking around doing stuff. Maybe. I, I don't know if that's a thing that could happen. I'm not convinced it's the case here. Maybe there are multiple realities and for some reason this little slice of space-time that happens to run through my kitchen is a thin place. Maybe there's like a parallel reality where some ordinary living person is just going about his business in his kitchen and our kitchens and our realities bump into each other sometimes. And sometimes I wonder if I'm a ghost. Maybe I'm haunting the kitchen ghost as much as he's haunting me. Maybe sometimes he's going about his day and he walks down the hallway past the open door and catches a glimpse from the corner of his eye of a very distinct form of a tall woman with pale skin and dark hair. And she's wearing the long pink and black cardigan I put on every morning when I make my cup of coffee. But when he turns his head to look more directly, there's nothing unusual to see. Maybe there's something about the column of space that runs through this old mansion, this vertical plane of reality that's like a little slice of Yule every day. Like, I know it probably sounds scary to hear about a faceless apparition that just hangs out in my apartment. I know a lot of people would be frightened by that because it's outside of the parameters of what we typically accept as a safe reality. But though I am no great fan of any of the major Western religions, there's one piece of wisdom in the Bible which I really appreciate and use as a basic guiding principle in my own life, and that's Matthew 7:16. You will know them by their fruits. You will know whether a person or a thing or an idea is good or evil because of what it does in the world. The fruits it produces will tell you whether an idea or a thing or a person is good or bad, something you should fear or not, an idea you should follow or not a deity you should worship or not. It doesn't matter what these figures say about their own goodness or utility. It's their actions that will reveal the truth to you. There's an ancient book I personally find much more wisdom in than the Bible, and which I have more use for on a personal level. It's called the Havamal, and it dates back to sometime long before the 13th century, although we don't know how far in the past, because a 13th century copy is like the most recent one we have, but it's been copied from older, older versions, right? The Havamal's attributed to Odin, that guy I mentioned earlier who flies through the sky on the wild hunt, although that's not, that's not all Odin does. The Havamal's a collection of sound advice for good living, like ostensibly it came from the god Odin himself, and it has its own version of the concept set forth in Matthew chapter 7. The Havamal instructs, when you see evil, call it evil, and make no troth with your enemies. Well, the apparition in my kitchen hasn't done any evil yet, so how can I call it evil? It looks strange, for sure, but I'd be a hypocrite if I hated something just because it wasn't beautiful. So as far as I'm concerned, the kitchen ghost is welcome to stay. Not that I could get rid of it if I wanted to. And rather than creeping me out, uh, it's making me feel a little more festive this time of year. I've got a little slice of Yule right in my kitchen, and that means I get to step into the magic of the season anytime I please. 
Happy Yule Kitchen Ghost. I'm glad we get to share a little space time together. And I hope I don't scare you too badly because I come in peace. I don't, I don't believe in astrology, but every time I wonder what's going on in the world, Mercury's always in retrograde, and I've been told today that all of the planets are in retrograde, so <laughs> my life is in retrograde. I feel like I've just been navigating small inconveniences one after another for, like, weeks. This is my friend Allison Epstein. They're a fantastic author of historical fiction, and their latest book, A Tip for the Hangman, is one you definitely don't want to miss. Their writing is beautiful, their characters are memorable, and they know how to write a tight, pacey plot. They're also hilarious, and in addition to their novels, they also write the world's greatest substack, which is called Dirtbags Through the Ages, and it features some of the most bizarre and notorious figures across the entire span of human history. Allison's substack is probably my favorite thing to read, ever. I'm not really a believer in astrology either, which is weird because I do believe in a lot of weird woo shit that most people would be like, that's crazy, Libby. And it is. It's crazy. And I still believe in it. But I like astrology never, never did it for me. And I don't know why, unless it's because I'm a Taurus, but nothing really about the Taurus thing fits me. Except, I mean, I am into sensual pleasures. If by sensual pleasures, you mean getting stoned all the time and just laying around eating food and listening to music. So I guess that is kind of a Torian thing. I mean, I have a friend who's a freelance astrologer and they would tell you that's the most Taurus thing you could ever have said is lounging around stoned, enjoying food. So I know it is kind of Taurus-y. I don't really believe in it either, but I find it super interesting, which is how I'm, I am with like most woo things. I'm like, I don't know if I believe it, but I want to know everything about it. Yeah, I do find it fascinating. I have noticed that Mercury always seems to be in retrograde. Like, people talk about that a lot. Is it really the case, or is this just a meme now? Everyone's like, Mercury's in retrograde, and I am not picking up on it because I'm old? I don't know. I don't know. Do other things retrograde? Can you get, like, retrograde Venus? I don't understand how this works. I don't know. I'm like, are we getting back into, like, the Ptolemaic system of the universe? And then I'm like, okay, no. This is this is the renaissance astrology research that I did. Oh god, research. I have been researching all of the railroad routes of the 1930s lately cuz like that's like my the book I'm working on right now is set in 1931 and it's train hobos traveling around so I'm like how can they get from place to place? I recall seeing you talk about this book and am I correct in saying they are lesbian train hobos in the 1930s cuz I well like it's never explicitly stated that they're lesbian train hobos. But, like, between you and me. But. Okay. It's implied. I mean, at least one of them is in love with the other one, and it's never made clear to the reader whether the other one is in love with the first one or not. It's open to interpretation. It could even be lesbian pining on the railroads. That's, like, all of my favorite things. So. That's basically, yeah. I mean, lesbian pining on the railroads is the entire book. If that's not what you titled this book, I will be disappointed. <laughs> no, it's called October in the Earth, and I hope the title stays. My editor liked it, but I've had editors say they liked a title before, and then like two weeks before the book's about to get printed with the cover and everything, they're like, we should change the title. I'm like, fuck! <laughs> well, you've got one up on me, because I don't think I've ever had an editor tell me they like the title. I've always had the editor say, no, we'll change that later, which is fine. <laughs>
That's surprising to me, though, because your titles are so fucking good. They are not the working titles, Libby. As long as you land on the right title eventually, it's okay for something to have a stupid working title. Okay, listen, listeners, these are the titles of Allison's currently available books. A tip for the hangman. You're dead already, right? That's fucking amazing. It killed you. Resurrect yourself because I'm about to kill you again. Let the dead bury the dead. And now you're dead and the dead will bury you because of how great that title is. <laughs> what, what's the working title for the third one you're working on right now? My, my working document is just titled Victorian Jewish Book, which is like not going to sell, but that's what it is. So I want, I want that to be the actual title so bad. Me too. I think it's descriptive. I'd read it. <laughs> I can picture that like on a bookshelf. I'm walking around in a bookstore. What am I going to read? Did, did it, Victorian Jewish book? What the fuck is this? I'm buying it. I don't need additional information. Those are two of my favorite things to read about in historical novels. I'm in. That's great, but it is. It's a historical that is set in Jewish culture in, in the Victorian era. What's the actual, like, what location, though? It's set in London. This is all very, uh, I have not talked to my editor about this book yet, but, like, that's okay. I'm decided I'm talking about it because I've been spending enough time staring at this Word document for the past six months that, like, I feel like I have to talk about it or I'm just talking to my cat about it, and that's fully unfortunate. So. That sounds cool, though. I, I don't think anyone in the industry is going to balk at that. They better not, because I'm really determined. I'm like, I'm not changing my mind now. So Victorian London is cool. It tends to sell pretty well. There's there's an established readership for that. There's also an established readership for Jewish fiction. So, like, you're just smashing two popular subgenres of historical fiction together. That sounds great. And, oh, my God, the research is so much easier. Let me tell you how much easier the research is when you're writing a book set in London than when you're writing a book set in 19th century St. Petersburg when you speak the level of Russian that a third grader might speak. It is so hard. And so I'm just like luxuriating in all of these books that I can read and these maps I can look at. It's so great. It is so nice when you can actually access more of that like world building research you need to do. It is such a relief. Seriously, it is. When I did... um. Uh, the Rise of Light, which was set in the 1970s in my hometown in Rexburg, Idaho. I, I was, like, trying to figure out if the swimming pool in the park existed in 1976. And I was able to just email a librarian. And I was like, hi, I'm a writer. I'm trying to, I'm working on this novel set in Rexburg. Can you, do you have any way of knowing, like, is there some document somewhere that says whether there, the pool was in Porter Park in 1976? And she was like, oh, I've lived here in 1976. Yeah, it was here. I remember it. I was like, Yeah. <laughs> great it's so great you can ask somebody a question and they know the answer it's like yeah i saw that pool with my own eyes i know oh at least five times a day at least i think to myself how the fuck did people write historical fiction before there was google yeah it's so much easier now <laughs> what did we do without the wikipedia page for the history of street lighting which is like one of my top 10 web pages because i check it like once a week like, as, as soon as you open Safari, it's one of the little squares of, like, your most visited pages, History of Street Lighting. <laughs> it is. It's, like, Twitter. It's Goodreads, which I shouldn't be on Goodreads, but I don't have any self-control. And then it's Wikipedia pages for, like, forks and lights. That's what I'm... Uh, I was on Goodreads this morning while I was having my breakfast, and I found some hilarious shit, and I was so glad I went and looked at reviews of my book. I saw the one that you marked as... A, they marked as a spoiler, which I thought was... Yes. I made a little video of it. It's so funny. This this review is marked 
spoiler alert, so you can't see it. You have to click on this little thing that's like, yes, I want to see the spoilers for this book. You click on it, and all it says is, did not finish. <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> Love it so much. And then there's another one that's a one-star review that says, I gave up. I don't like Mormons. And I was like, me too, dude. <laughs> story of my life, actually. <laughs> that's how I, I left the church and became a historical novice, novelist who writes about Mormons. <laughs> Did not like Mormons. Give <laughs> up. Can't stand this shit anymore. Get me out of here. <laughs> Do you have a favorite bad review of one of your books? No, because I'm a very sensitive, delicate person and I try not to read them anymore. Oh, that's probably smart. Yeah. What I do when I go on Goodreads is I filter five stars only and I just read the nice things people want to say about me and then I close it down. Good. Um, because I read like two one star reviews and I was like, okay, I'll never write again. So I know Aww. myself. I, I can't do that. So I setting my boundaries. That's good. I, I'm not bothered by bad reviews. Usually I find them really funny because very frequently people will identify stuff in a bad review that's also the thing I hate about that book. So they'll like complain about something bitterly and I'll be like, dude, me too. I know. <laughs> right? This book is fucking long. There's so much description in it. What is wrong with me? It's great. That is also how I would review my own books. Why is it so long? Why is there so much of it? That's good, though. I mean, there's definitely, there are readers who really love a big, fat, long book. That sounds sexual. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, they can get whatever kind of pleasure they want out of it, and I won't. A big, throbbing, meaty, hard book. <laughs> a book you can call daddy. That's what I'm trying to write. And that's that's usually what I write, but definitely dubious lesbian train hobos is very short. Like, I keep projecting how long this book is going to be, and my calculations keep coming in at a horrifying, like, 70,000 words. That's so reasonable. What are you doing? That's not long enough. Like, first of all, the contract is for 100,000, so I need to beef it up somewhere. 30,000 more words of pining. I know. But, like, also, like, I'm trying to decide whether most of the Olivia Hawker readers will be pleasantly surprised by a short like like I can probably get it up to 80,000 words like are they going to be happy that I gave them a short read or are they going to be like what the fuck is this like I want a doorstopper <laughs> this is not what I come to Olivia Hawker for where are my uh, endless descriptions of landscape and four different chapters of the same scene from four different point of view characters <laughs> you know <laughs> um, my first book popped out at 122,000 I was politely told by my editor and my production team, don't go any longer than this for this book or for other books. And I was like, okay, note taken. I will try to keep it to this, but we will see. No one has ever told me that in publishing. Like when I sold The Prophet's Wife, it was 200,000 words. And I was like, I'll, I'll probably have to trim it down a little, but like. How long did it end up being? 175 which is shorter shorter than Blackbird. I read it on my iPad, and so I had no sense of how many pages there were. Yeah, it's a long book. It's a long book. It just keeps going. It's great. There's just so much of it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. That's that's usually how I write. I just, I write about big things in history, or I write about, like, really huge emotional issues that just take a lot of time to explore, and they just turn into long books. But I've never had any publisher say, like, we're not buying this book because of the length. 
which I don't know if that's just the way my weird luck has run or not. Like, I always assumed it was just that they don't really care that much about it. But if you're getting told by your editors, like, you can't go over 120,000, then maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are really strict about this. I think in historical fiction, you can get away with a lot because our readers are like, yeah, give me the longest, densest book you have and tell me about all of the clothes everyone's wearing. Tell me about the food. Like, I'm the same way. I want all of it. But I think especially if you're newer and you have less of a track record, they're like, we don't want to put all this money into printing a 600-page book if we don't know how much you're going to sell. That makes sense, yeah. It uh, wouldn't be a problem if they would just go switch to print-on-demand. Like, we have the technology to do that now. That's what Lake Union does. Like, they don't print runs in advance. They do print-on-demand as the books sell, which is smart. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It does. There's so many things the publishing industry does, though, that just, like, why are you guys doing that? It doesn't need to be that way. It's the 21st century. We're two decades into it already. Like, keep up with the times. Come on. And 98% of the people in publishing know that. They're like, you should change this. Oh, yeah. And all agree with me. But it's the 2% of ding-dongs at, like, the very top of the decision-making chain that are like, no, we're going to still keep acting like it's 1942. I don't know if you uh, found yourself glued to the Penguin Random House DOJ trial. I did nothing for three weeks because that was the only thing I wanted to follow and I just about like worked myself into a stroke but I just couldn't stop reading it. It was something wasn't it? Like I know we're both gonna tiptoe around being very careful how we talk about this because we're authors and that's the position we find ourselves in in this industry but it was something. It's actually that that is the reason why I made this podcast. Like, I'd been thinking for a long time, I was like, I should do something with a podcast. That would be fun someday, but what would that be? I don't know, whatever. As soon as I was reading that, I was like, I need to seize control of production. Like, I need to have more of a hold over my career. I cannot trust it to this system. Like, that's not fair to me. It's not fair to the work I do and my potential to just, like, trust to this pack of capitalists. So then I was like, how can I effectively do that? How can I find people who will like the thing I'm making? And I was like, oh, I should just like basically speak short stories into a microphone, which is kind of what I do. And then I wanted to bring in this component of talking to interesting people too, because first of all, no one wants to listen to me for an extended period of time. <laughs> one time, I don't remember what what I did or where this was, but this just like the comment stuck with me forever. Somebody, I saw a comment like online from someone that said, my voice sounds like Kermit the Frog having an anxiety attack. And I was like, I think that's generous. Like, I think they were being kind. (laughs) You're welcome. That's okay, though. Like, I don't have a great voice. I'm fine with that. You know, I may be an unlikely podcaster, but I also, like, I have a few friends who also don't have great voices and are fucking killing it in podcasting. Like, as long as you're engaging and fun and your subject and your, like, format is interesting, I think people will forgive a lot where voice is concerned. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. if, If I don't get a lot of subscribers, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I think a lot of us are tired of listening to, like, nothing against NPR, but, like, the NPR voice. Like a smooth, silky... I wonder... So I used to do a lot of acting. I wonder if I could, like... Can I try to do a more pleasant voice to listen to? Hello, listeners. This is Libby Grant. Is that better than, like, what I normally sound like? Or was it just the same? I feel like you're trying you're trying to lure me into a haunted elevator a little bit, and I don't feel great about it. <laughs> Hi, Allison. Don't you want to step inside this beautiful elevator that I promise is not haunted? Don't you want to 
ride it down to hell. <laughs> I gotta put like some thunder effects or something in here. Fantastic. Oh my god. Speaking of haunted things, um, I've been tweeting a lot lately about my haunted apartment, which keeps getting more haunted the longer I live in it. Have you seen any of my shit about this that I've posted? I've seen your UFO tweets. I have not seen your haunted house tweets. And I have to emphasize for the listeners, Libby, Libby knows this. Um, I care so much about haunted houses in general. They are one of my favorite things in the world. So I need you to tell me. Dude, I live in a haunted mansion now, Allison. <laughs> Okay, so I've already talked a little bit on this podcast before about where I live, but I'm, I'll go over it again real quickly so you have the, the, the skinny on it. So this house I live in, um, it was uh, built in 1905 by Samuel McClure, who is this like famous architect in um, British Columbia. So he's built a ton of like really well-known houses and other buildings in on, on Vancouver Island and in the city of Vancouver on the mainland. So like McClure mansions are like a thing in, in BC. So this house has been um, divided up into four apartments. And then we rent one of the apartments in, in here while we're like figuring out where in Victoria we want to buy a house. As soon as we pulled up in our moving van, the neighbors came out to greet us. They were all very friendly. First one neighbor came out and was like, oh. It's so nice to meet you. Welcome to the welcome to the house. I'm sure we're gonna get along great. Like as we are stepping down out of the van, you know this house is haunted, right? Yes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and then the like later that afternoon, as we're moving stuff in, the other neighbor comes home. She's like, "Oh, I've been wondering who the new people are gonna be. It's so nice to meet you. You know this house is haunted, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, I can't wait." <laughs> All you're missing is like a mysterious third man to be sitting in a rocking chair. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not bothered by spooky ooky shit. In fact, I kind of like it. So I was like, cool, I'm going to live with the ghost. That's going to be fun. Um, But I was like, you know, I'll probably never see anything. Usually people have strange experiences and it has a very mundane explanation and they just ascribe something paranormal to it because it's the quickest and easiest explanation they can reach for. Right. Um, So I was like, you know, probably nothing like this really happened in here. We start settling in. Paul takes off to go to the mainland to go back um, and work on our house out there for our renters who are going to be moving in. I'm in the kitchen alone. I've been here for almost three weeks now by myself. In the kitchen alone, doing my thing. Um, I like straighten up from the refrigerator and, you know, turn around to do something. And I just got this feeling that Paul was walking right past me. You know how like, like when someone walks close to you, your whole body like responds to the proximity of another body. You're like, Bleh. but then like instantly I was like, wait, Paul's not here. And I turned and looked and there is this figure, this humanish shadow shape, like six feet from me that was like in the process of disappearing. And it was like before my eyes, it just whoop, vanished. And I was like, who's that ghost? Ha! Huh? Did you tell like age, gender, like was there a face or was it just like No, it was just it was just a human shape. I, I got the impression that it was male, I think because my immediate reaction was that it was Paul. Mm-hmm. But I there was just it was just like it was like head and shoulders just shadow. Um just and it like from the bottom up just went whoop and vanished. I was like, what the fuck was that? And then I was like, that was so cool. So of course my immediate thought was, I got to tweet about this. Sure, of course. So I just thought the ghost, you guys. 
And then just two nights ago, this is a new story for listeners to my podcast. I've already told the ghost in the kitchen story. I was, I guess the ghost likes the kitchen because I was in the kitchen again, sitting at my table. I had just uh, ordered some pizza from DoorDash, which is so exciting to me because I just lived on a tiny island for seven years where there was no DoorDash. Like as DoorDash was created and became a thing, I was unable to access it. And now I'm like ordering food all the time because it's a novelty. So I got some pizza. I'm sitting down at my table uh, at one chair. There's another chair across the table from me. I'm eating my pizza. I look up at the chair across from me. And as I'm looking at that spot, this little green circle goes like pops into existence and immediately popped out again and I was like it was in the chair like (laughs) as if it was sitting there waiting for me to pass it some pizza (laughs) and I was just like what the fuck was that it was so distinct and so clear and so there you know like it wasn't like my eyes were kind of fuzzy and it was funky and maybe I saw something and maybe I didn't it was like this physical green orb showed up and then immediately went away again and I was like what weird because you always think about ghosts like keeping the shape of the body that they came out of like why why is it necessary like it could be if i was a ghost i could be a green circle like i don't have physical form why not and i would come back for your pizza 100 percent. and so then it again like i tweeted about it again i was like you guys will not fucking believe what just happened and then six minutes after i sent that tweet i was sitting there eat still eating my pizza and another, like, light anomaly manifested, again, in that chair right across from me on the other side of the table. But it was this, like, blue, it was blue this time. And it was kind of bent like a horseshoe. Like, instead of an orb, it was an upward curve. Like a little smile or like a U. And it just, same thing. Like, popped into existence, popped out again. And I was like, what? So then I grabbed my phone and I started recording with a video. And I was like, hey, nice, nice to meet you. It's cool that you're here. Um, can you like do that again? Can you reappear? Nothing happened. I was like, do you want some pizza? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll leave you a slice if you want some. <laughs> I'm talking to it. Nothing happened. So that was two days ago. I don't know what else is going to happen, but it's just like, it's a haunted house. It's pretty cool though. Like I, it has good vibes. Like I have never felt upset or threatened by it. I've never, never thought it was scary. It's just like, it's all good vibes here. And I don't know who my ghostly roommate is, but you know, he seems to like the kitchen and he seems to be pretty chill. So. Floating blue horseshoe shape came, it came in the shape of a smile. That's like the least threatening kind of ghost you could ever get. Yes, or as I as I mentioned on Twitter, the first was a shape of an O, the second was a shape of a U, and I was like, if he manifests a T next, I got bad news. Oh no! I'm on a one year lease. I'm not getting out. I didn't think of that. (laughs) I don't. I'm not even sure this thing is aware that I'm here. Whatever this thing is, I don't know if it's conscious. I don't know if it's just like a funky anomalous effect of time and space. But I don't get any any threatening feeling from it. It's weird for sure. It's strange, but I'm not like freaked out by it. I'm just like okay. Do you get that feeling like anywhere else in the house or is it just when you're in the kitchen? I haven't anywhere else in the house so far, but even like, you know, like I don't know, like I can't, it's not like I can feel it coming when I'm in the kitchen. It's just like two different times on, you know, on two different days, this thing has manifested in the kitchen and I'm like, oh, okay. I'm super interested to see how my cats react once we get them up here. I don't know if they're going to, if they're going to care or if they're going to be freaked out or not. So. Because I always assume that cats can see ghosts. Like they're looking at something. I've always assumed. My cat Choopy is a total dick too, so I'm hoping he like gives the ghost a hard time. What else do I have a dickhead cat for if not to scare off poltergeists? Uh, have you ever seen a ghost or like anything weird? I've never seen a ghost. I thought one time I heard a ghost and I like really stand by it. 
the listeners to this will be like, no, obviously you were having a lucid dream, but like, I don't care. I know what I felt. I don't lucid dream. It was two apartments ago, so it was a while ago, and it was one of those old, I'm in the Chicago area, so it was like one of the old Chicago, like 1890s apartment buildings. They've been around forever, like the big tall ceilings and the whistling like radiators and stuff. And when I moved in, the only thing that was left in the apartment was a crucifix hanging on the wall, which I thought was deeply unsettling. I didn't really know what to do with it, so I just put it in a drawer, and I never, I didn't want to throw it away. That felt bad. So, just like, I won't use this drawer. This is the slightly haunted crucifix drawer. I've been living there for like a year at some point, and I was like, the walls were fairly thin, so I could hear my neighbors, but like, I could never hear their music, like, note for note. You could just hear like rumbling of bass or whatever. But it was one night, it was like, I don't know, like between one and four in the morning at some point, and I just, for like half an hour, heard somebody playing. U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday but it was like as if it had been arranged for like you know the kind like I don't know what it's called but the the music they play on carousels like that weird spooky carousel music like a calliope yes that's what it's called okay Sunday Bloody Sunday on the calliope is horrifying yeah it just kept going I didn't know what to do and I'm like I'm very certain I was awake and it went on for a while and none of my neighbors heard it but I know what I heard, and I can't explain that any other way. What a fucking weird experience. Yeah, it wasn't even scary. I was just like, what the fuck is happening right now? I love stuff like this, though. I, this is gonna, this podcast probably gonna end up in the, like, paranormal categories because of how often, like, it's not supposed to be a paranormal podcast, but I just, like, so much weird shit has happened to me and happens to me. That's, like, all I ever want to talk about. Can I tell you the story of uh, the first date Paul and I went on? Is there a ghost in it? There's some weird entity in it. Then yes. Okay. So Paul and I went to school together through elementary and high school, but we were just, like, we were just buddies in high school. We didn't date or anything. That's adorable. And then we reconnected 12 years after I had graduated, 10 years after he graduated, um, at a friend's New Year's Eve party. And um, became interested in each other then, but he had to go on a deployment, so we didn't date for a while. But then after he came back from this deployment, he looked me up, and, and I was like, yeah, let's, let's go out. It'll be really fun. So he came and picked me up in his Jeep, and we didn't have any plans. We were just like, I don't know, let's drive around. Let's go to our old neighborhood when we were in elementary school. And then I was like, oh, do you remember? So there was one year during our elementary experience when they were remodeling our regular school, so they moved everybody for one school year to this, like, weird, old, decrepit elementary school that was, like, back in the woods. And this was in a suburb of Seattle, right? So it's, like, in a weird location. And he was like, yeah, let's go check out that old school. I was like, okay, yeah, woo, it's gonna be fun. We figured out where it was. This was before everyone had GPS in their cars. We were driving out there. It turns out the school was like way back on this twisty, turny cul-de-sac and there were no streetlights out there. It was super dark. Because of course, if I were to draw this, that's what it would look like. As we're driving along, we passed a bunch of children's bikes on the side of the road with a sign that said free, like someone was giving away all these old bikes. And I was like, oh dude, this is going to be great. Stop the car. He stops the Jeep. I get out. I grabbed a tiny bicycle with training wheels on it, and I start pedaling madly down the street in front of his Jeep. So, like, the headlights are lighting me. There's no one else on the road. It's, you know, midnight or whatever, and we are on this bizarro residential street that goes to nowhere. I am riding this tiny bike with training wheels down this, down this road. Eventually, I start to see the dim shape of, like, the old spooky school 
in like materializing out of the darkness in front of me. It was clear that it has been not used for many, many years. Like it's shit's boarded up. There's graffiti all over it, whatever. At that point, I noticed standing like right at the edge of the cul-de-sac, like as, as road turned into school was this huge, very, very tall, completely black figure with glowing green eyes. And it was staring straight at me. Ah, and I, like, Paul stopped the Jeep. I stopped this tiny bike. I sat there for what felt like forever. It was probably, like, two seconds. Looking at this thing, it was like, I hate to use a, a, a modern egregore. It looked like Slenderman. It was tall, skinny, black, just very tall, very thin, with vibrantly green glowing eyes. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And I, <laughs> and I got up and I, like, threw the bike into the bushes and jumped back in the Jeep. And I was, like, sitting there. And Paul's like, do you see that? I was like, yeah what is that? He was like, I don't know. And I was like, what should we do? What should we do? And like, we're just sitting there staring at this thing. It's staring at us. And finally he just turned the Jeep around and we drove the fuck out of there. And then the next night we were like, what should we do? And immediately, because we are yeah. two spooky motherfuckers, we're like, let's go back. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> this is how you die in the horror movie. So we did go back to the abandoned elementary school. There was no, we, by this time we had like dubbed this figure Mothman, which obviously it's not really Mothman, but we drove back and we we're like, let's go look for Mothman. And we just like walked around this abandoned elementary school. Didn't find anything spooky, but we were like holding hands and it was very romantic for a couple of goth nerds like us. So um, that was our first date. <laughs> I love it. Uh, question both of your decision making a little bit. <laughs> I know. If it had been Mothman, like one of the best all-time cryptids, no question. I know, right? For sure, Mothman is up there. What's like? What are your top cryptids? Uh, I think Mothman and probably Jersey Devil. Those are. Oh, I love Jersey Devil. Jersey Devil's a good one. Do you listen to Last Podcast on the Left? I do not. Oh, you should. You would love them. I probably like. It's totally your your thing. Yeah, yeah. There's an entire episode on the Jersey Devil that has like Renaissance level ballad written about the jersey devil that is like this guy from the 1970s is strumming this renaissance tune on the guitar and singing soulfully about the jersey devil you gotta listen to it you love it so much no you're right yeah that's that's for me particularly that is, <laughs> that is definitely yeah. for you <laughs> I feel like jersey devil is a good one because because he has that like historical tang to him you know like there's the whole ah uh, long ago in these pine barrens uh, a woman had her 13th child and cursed it and it was a devil and it flew up the chimney and killed its whole family or whatever you know i like them to have a little bit of lore you know like yeah I, I'm, I'm nothing against bigfoot but like i find bigfoot boring because it's just like here's an animal out in the woods and it's very large I'm like okay that doesn't involve anybody turning into smoke and flying up a chimney so i am Right. Bigfoot's not that exciting. All the ones I like the best have the lore, like uh, like Mothman. Mothman has like all the weird prescience. He appears before disasters. You know, yeah, Mothman's cool. I like him. We had a Chicago Mothman. Once I remember that. Years ago. Yeah. It, it was cool. Like the pictures people took. I don't know if they were faked or not, or if they were just birds. <laughs> Even if they were, whatever. It was still a cool picture of Mothman, and like I don't really care if it's true or not. I just want to enjoy it. <laughs> So I was like, we got Mothman. Um, here's something weird. After Bigfoot, Mothman is maybe the cryptid that people write the most weird erotica about. I don't know why. <laughs> I can see that. And then I was like, what does this say about me? But I'm like, yeah, no, if I were to write cryptid erotica, it'd probably be Mothman. Have you ever written, you've never written cryptid erotica? I have not. I've not read it. I have not written it. But I, more power to you if you have. 
Um, I only did it once, and it turned out to be uh, my most consumed piece of writing to date, which is horrifying. It's a little bit what I'm afraid of if I were to do that. Like, I work really hard on my real stuff, and then I'm like, here's a single piece of fanfic that's like Captain America and Moth, and that's like, that's my legacy. Yeah, that's it, it, speaking of the aforementioned last podcast on the left. They have a uh, a couple times a year they do a, a creepy pasta episode where they read like crazy stories they've found on the internet that are meant to be fiction. You know, people write like fictional stories and they're like, whoa. <laughs> I have one like I think about every week. Have you read the one about the stairs in national parks? The stairs in national parks. The stairs. Yes. Like, the, the staircases that appear in the middle of the woods in, like, Yellowstone National Park, and they lead nowhere, but if you walk up them, you come down never the same. <gasps> like, it's it's so good. I have not read that. I'm going to seek it out. It sounds fun. Please do. It goes on forever. But anyway, continue. I don't remember how, so so the creepypasta episodes are, like, a thing, and then over the years, like, it sort of, it, it morphed inevitably into, instead of, like, spooky stories, it's, like, people's crazy, weird erotica that they're writing about things. <laughs> And, um, but just funny, you know, it's hilarious. And, uh, at one point I was in some kind of, like, oh, there was a, um, they used to do a live stream where they would show, like, crazy videos they'd found. And then in the chat, at one point, one of the hosts mentioned that the one type of erotica they had never found yet, the one cryptid erotica they had not come across yet was the Flatwoods Monster. And I was higher than a kite while I was watching this, so I typed into the chat, I'm gonna write Flatwoods Monster Erotica and send it into the next creepypasta episode. Bleh. And then one of the hosts who knows me and knows that I am a professional writer was like, Libby Hawker's gonna write Flatwoods Monster Erotica for a creepypasta. You gotta do it now, Libby. And I was like, fuck. Didn't think you'd see that. So I did. When they had their next creepypasta episode, I was like, all right, a promise is a promise, even if you're stoned when you make it. So I wrote a piece of Flatwoods Monster Erotica and it got read on this podcast. And they have like, hundreds of thousands of listeners like so many more listeners than i have readers right um and so since it was read on this podcast that was probably downloaded like close to a million times that is my most consumed piece of writing to date which is so bad (laughs) i hope you're extremely proud of that as you should be i hope that goes on it's in your author bio on the back of the book (laughs) i mean I mean, I'm not not proud of it. <laughs> so I need you to tell me what the Flatwoods Monster is, because I do not know. Okay, the Flatwoods Monster, uh, this was a an apparition that appeared, I think, back in the early 50s, if I remember right. I did research for my erotica I wrote. Um, and it was a sighting where a couple different people saw this weird light in the forest in Virginia and um, went and checked it out, and they saw this, like, entity, this thing floating around in the forest and they described it as like looking like it was wearing a metallic skirt and its head was shaped like um like a spade like like the suit of cards so it was like big on the bottom and then really pointy on top and it had big glowing eyes and it had these weird like long tentacly fingers oh well you got tentacles all your erotica work was already done for you yep exactly (laughs) so um so both of the people who saw it described it the same way so it was very weird and anomalous but it was never seen again that was the flatwoods monster so um yeah that was what i wrote some porn about and it was pretty fun love that for you maybe you don't want to admit to this but have you ever written erotica like have you did you try to to like get your start writing erotica like so many authors have done i will answer that question in two ways one i identify as asexual so it's not something that i think about all the time and two, I do have an AO3 account that I will never share in public. So there is some stuff on there, but I won't tell you what it is. AO3! That's my private secret for me and myself. 
for those who don't know what AO3 is, it's archive of our own, and it is a fan fiction like archive. Yes. And you can go on there and search for like any fandom that you're in. Like you know, if you're into Pride and Prejudice, you can go in there and you can filter it so you're not. It's not just porn. It's probably sixty percent porn, but like the forty, there's a lot of you can get some very wholesome fanfic in there as well. Yes, like there there's stuff there that's just like people have have expanded you know the stories in their minds and and are watching the characters do this other stuff that they've envisioned. But I mean, a lot of that other stuff that they envision is fucking for sure. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. It definitely is. <laughs> I love I love the idea of an asexual person like writing erotica for money though. That is funny to me because it's so like cynical. You know? <laughs> Let me tell you though, I think about it exactly the same way I think about writing a fight scene. Because I'm like, okay. I've also never punched a man in the face. I don't particularly want to, but like I know how it works and I've seen it a lot, so I know what to do. Right. Like I can follow my way through the choreography just fine. Right. You're like, I can I think I can make a convincing play at this. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I love most is that for my first book, one of the negative reviews I got called it a bodice ripper. And I laughed for a thousand years because I was like, you don't even know, my friend, how little that is relevant. <laughs> there are so few bodices being ripped in the imagination of this author. <laughs> no, I, was, I was stunned. I was like, what? what are you into that I didn't know I was writing about? <laughs> I think there's... I've also had some books accused of being bodice rippers and I was deeply confused by that. And I think there's like a certain subset of reader out there who thinks bodice ripper means something very different from what it actually means. Like they think it means there's sex in the book. Or they think it means like overwrought historical fiction that's very melodramatic. It's like, that's not what it means. It means sex. Yeah. I'm like, what do you think a bodice is? Like, why is it ripping? I don't know, yeah. What's the next step in that choreography? It's that the right. bosoms are out. That's what it means. A bodice rips and then it's titties everywhere. Like, you let your imagination fill in the blanks there, I suppose. I want the title of my next book, Titties Everywhere. I think that's what Titties Everywhere. That would sell. <laughs> oh my god. So do you have plans yet for, like, what your fourth book's gonna be? Or is, am I stressing you out by asking that? Oh, don't ask me that. <laughs> I just asked because a lot of writers, like, have too many ideas. That's not my problem. I have, I am a hyper fixator on one idea, and I will write that idea into the ground. And then I will sit in my house alone with no ideas, panicking that I'll never have an idea again until the next idea wanders along. And then I'm like, oh, thank God, an idea. I hear writers talk about, oh, I have the next six to seven books planned out. And I'm like, with what brain space? I only have this one. It's me and my stupid idea. And we're going all the way through. It and me. Do you ever feel, do you ever feel like ideas um, come from somewhere outside you? Or is that not how your process works? I have never felt that. I believe it works like that for other people. I feel like for me, ideas come to me out of the research. Like I just read about people in places and times that I'm interested in. And I keep doing that until I'm like, ah, right there right there is a story and I see it and I want to tell it. I've never like woken up one day and be like, I have this amazing idea that came out of nowhere and I wish I was. I, I'm the type of person who like, sometimes I have to just beat an idea out of the ether for myself because like I need to get another book under contract so I can pay my bills. Then I have to just sort of try to figure out what the market's going to like and just like construct something around that. And it usually works out pretty well. 
Um, but my best books have all been ones that just like fell into my head out of nowhere when I, I wasn't even looking for an idea. I'm just, you know, watering my plants or whatever. And suddenly it's like this, it feels like a physical impact. Like something smacks me in the head and I'm like, oh! <laughs> and it's usually just a title. Like usually just a title will pop into my head. And I'm like, what the, what is that? And then I don't know. And I have to like wait for the rest of it to reveal itself and this is really frustrating when, like, I have two or three titles that have not revealed what the actual book is about, and my publisher is like, we need another book from you soon. I'm like, but I don't know what it is. But yeah, it's weird. It, it's it's funny. Like, the process is so different for every writer. Like, everybody approaches that initial creation, the initial, like, starting point from a totally different angle. And then I find, usually, it's pretty similar for almost all of us once you actually have an idea and you're like, okay, I'm working on this, then it's like, you know, research, figuring out your character, what they want, yada yada, and then like figuring out the different scenes and how they're gonna link together. And that's all pretty standard, but like everybody starts from a completely different point, which is so fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think once the idea comes, I think the idea comes like from different directions for different people. Like so for me, I always get the character first. I'm like, okay, here's the person who's gonna be telling the story, and then I'm like, okay, but what are they doing and what on earth is happening to them? But I usually have setting and character and I have to write 50 unusable pages with that character in that setting wandering around until they find the story that they're supposed to be in and like it's deeply inefficient but by the time I get to the plot I usually have the character pretty well because that's that's always what I have first it's like have you ever have you ever played D&D or like a similar role-playing game yeah it's like when you are starting out an adventure and the game master is like you should go into the tavern and talk to people. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> like, go do something. Like, talk to people until you find a quest. It's exactly like that. And I walk, except I'm game mastering myself, so I have to walk into the tavern, and then I'm like, oh, sure, it'd be great if someone were to say something to prompt a plot. Eventually they do, but it's like three weeks later, and they've said four wrong things first. For as entertaining as I find role-playing games to be, because I've, I'm not a big role-playing game person, but I've played a few. Like, my first husband was really into it, so we used to play a lot. But uh, I'm surprised that I've never, like, checked out any of the podcasts that are, like, ongoing RPGs. Because I've heard that a lot of them are really, really funny and good, but I've never, like, I've just never ventured into it. Maybe I'll do it today when I'm on my walk after we record this. <laughs> but, like, I don't know. They are fun, though. Like, there's something so unexpected and stupid about the way they unfold like stupid in a good way where where it's just like it's foolish and surprising and like mysteriously you know, entertaining where you know you're rolling dice to get all these variables that come in and it's just like the dumbest shit happens like it's the most fun way to construct a story to be like be in it and then you just like throw in random variables to make story parts come together it's great because so much of media takes itself so 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 seriously and like everything wants to be prestige all the time yeah and like that's it, it exhausts me um my books are not prestige my books are here if you want to read a historical book and have a good time and like maybe learn a thing or two and feel some things but i'm not here to be like i'd like to win a national book award because this is the greatest book that anyone has ever crafted and i I get really tired when all of the TV I watch is prestige and all of the books I watch, the books I read are prestige. The podcasts are like so crafted out. I'm like, sometimes I just want someone to roll a dice and see an orc and like, I don't know, something dumb. I'm actually, I'm surprised that you, that you have that impression of your own work because I actually found a tip for the hangman to be very like deep and very beautifully written and like well-crafted. So awesome. Well, I appreciate that, and I also don't think they're mutually exclusive. No, 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 they're not at all. That's true, that's true. You can have a book that, like, cares about craft, but is not 
a book that's obsessed with its own craft. Yeah. And I think I I um studied for my MFA while I was finishing Hankam. Oh, okay. And I feel like I got I read a lot of books that are like in the MFA curriculum that are very preoccupied with their own craft and like they're beautiful and they're wonderfully done. I don't I don't want to write them. I like would like to read them interspersing them with other things. Yeah. But it's just like this is such a beautiful piece of art. I don't think of myself as creating art. I think of myself as telling stories and that feels different. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I do like the stuff that I write under my real name, Libby Grant, I do try to like make art with, you know. You read The Prophet's Wife. It's pretty up its own ass. Like, <laughs> let's be real. It is. It is art for sure. It's art. <laughs> it's got semicolons and everything. It's got a theme. It circles back to the theme. It's got hidden theme. <laughs> Yeah, themes have got themes. <laughs> it's um, but but I really like. I am so grateful that I actually have my pen name Olivia Hawker, where I can do like more commercial stuff that's just more entertaining and more fun. And like, yeah, that stuff, it does still have a little bit of a literary edge to it because I just I just like fancy prose. It's my thing. But it is nice. It's nice to be able to like step away from that and give my brain a fucking break and like, I don't know, I just want to think about lesbian hobos riding trains and like how much they want to kiss each other but can't. Like <laughs> And I'm like, great, pitch of my perfect book. That is what I want. Right there. I'm gonna get you to blurb this one when it comes out. And I, I'm gonna blurb it and it's just gonna say there are lesbian hobos on a train and they wanna kiss. <laughs> And that's going to be my blurb. These lesbian hobos want to kiss so bad. Alison Epstein, best-selling author of A Tip for the Hangman. Best-selling <laughs> author of, I think, is accurate. <laughs> oh, you'll get there, though. Like, you're only, you're, only yeah. your second book has, has, like, come out. It actually hasn't come out yet. It's out next year. I thought it, for some reason, I thought it was out this month or something. It's out next September because publishing oh. moves at the speed of molasses. Okay, yeah. It will be up for pre-order, like, next month or so. Okay, everybody, probably by the time this podcast comes out, Let the Dead Bury the Dead will be up for pre-order. Pre-order it! (laughs) Make yourself real happy next fall. (laughs) Yes, but, like, I feel like it takes a few books to get to the point where you can get to bestseller status. Like, obviously, there are some people who just, like, the stars align for them and they hit a list on their first book, but that is so rare. It's so, so rare. They always say what front list sells back list or whatever. Like yeah. the more books you put out, people are going to be like, okay, what else have you done? It, it keeps going. You have to build a career. And right now I have like the very baby beginnings of career. It's a strong beginning though. It's a super good beginning. And and it is true. Like front list sells back list like crazy. Cause I just had one come out. Um, the fire and the ore just came out. All of my other Olivia Hawker books all hit top 100 lists on Amazon. Like, they're all selling super well. I was like, fuck yeah, that's great, because my bank account was starting to look a little slim. So I need to replenish that. Had a couple years without a bestseller. It's getting a little scary. But you do have influence on, like, what was it, one year of baby names that you, like, made a peak in the baby name chart? I did! I did! (laughs) Okay, so in One for the Blackbird, One for the Crow, there's there's a character named Beulah, and Blackbird was very popular. Like, it was one of the, very fortunate to be able to say this, it was one of the top um, 100 best-selling books on Amazon in 2020 of any genre, which is fantastic. Whoa, it was so cool. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people read it. And um, a lot of people really liked the character Beulah. And yeah, in 2021, the baby name Beulah, like, peaked. <laughs> like, it had this huge spike. Because so many people had read it in 2020 and then got pregnant. And then were like, let's name our daughter Beulah. <laughs> There's not going to be another cause for that name. Like, I've met one Beulah, 
in my whole life and it was a 70 year old woman in rural Michigan who taught me how to shoot a bow and arrow like that's what I associate that name with so I mean you definitely want to learn how to shoot a bow and arrow from a 70 year old rural Michigan woman named Beulah though she seemed very knowledgeable yeah (laughs) (laughs) old old people names are kind of hot though these days like they're coming back my niece's name is Agatha I know Agatha isn't inherently a witch name but like it's got the witchiest vibes, and I love it. But that's- it does have the witchiest vibes, and she is kind of a witchy kid, which is really entertaining to my sister and me. We think it's great that she's, like, into that stuff. She's really into wearing, I don't know if she listens to The Cure, but all she wants to wear is Cure t-shirts now. <laughs> How old is, is this kid? She's 12. Okay, okay. <laughs> but it's so funny, because I was, I was talking to my sister, I was like, I knitted this really cool card- cardigan, but it doesn't really fit me. Do you think Agatha would like it? And she was like, uh, she's pretty much just dressing goth right now. <laughs> I was like, well, that's perfect. <laughs> Good. Love this for her. You gotta wait till she gets to, like, the goth grandma phase, where yeah. it's, like, flex, but cardigans also. I know. <laughs> Allison was a very popular name when you were born. Yes, it was. <laughs> I work at a company of about 400 people, and there are seven Allisons, so. Oh, my God. That's, we're just, we're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, my parents all almost named me Allison. Um, the only reason they didn't is because my cousin Amy was born on the same, like four hours before me on the same day. And they were like, we can't have two grandkids that are the same exact age and A's for their first initial because everyone will get confused. So, so to spare the grandparents the hassle, they were like, we can't name her Allison. And I kind of am thankful for that because there are so many Allisons, but they named me Melissa originally instead, which was like just as bad. Just as many Melissas. There are, all, I mean, you got your Allisons, your Emilys, your Melissas, and your Jennifers. And that's pretty much, if you were born in the late 80s, early 90s, you were one of those four things. Yeah, yeah. So I legally changed my name to Libby, which was my middle name originally, because I was just fucking sick of being one of 18 Melissas in any given room. So it never felt like my name anyway. I, I, like, I was not sad to change my name. I always went by Libby. Everybody called me that. So I was like, now it's legally my name. Ha ha. You're like, take that. Parents? Me? I don't know. Parents. They weren't surprised, though, because everybody had been calling me Libby for so long. <laughs> right. Well, we've just about hit our hour here. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up and discuss? I mean, we already made it to Cryptid Erotica. I don't see where else I could possibly go from there. Where do you go after talking about Mothman's dick? That seems like peak content to me, so... <laughs> A spook in Tin Pan Alley Walking on the piano keys He's a jiving ghost Who can make the most of his rhythmic tendency So better watch out Someone's about Haunting the town With new kinds of rhythm You may meet The boogie woogie boogie man Better beware Better take care Cause if you don't You'll go along with him When you meet The boogie woogie boogie man if you see him once, he'll really hex you. Yes, that man can really vex you. With his face, he almost wrecks you. Put the boogie, better get wise. Cause if he tries, he will soon have you beating his rhythm. When you meet the boogie, woogie, boogie man. Don't be sure every night that you lock the door tight. Turning on every light. Making all the room bright. If you don't do it right, what a terrible fright he will give you when he comes. 
wheels swing through the door. Billy gets sore. Cutting rugs on the floor. Five hundred or more. As he sings, he will pound with a horrible sound. Like a hundred million drums. If you see him once, can really hex you. Yes, that man can really vex you. With his face, he almost wrecks you. Stay out of two boogie woogie. Better get wise, cause if he tries, he will soon have you beating his rhythm. When you meet, you beat your feet. You join ain't neat, but the rhythm sweet. So if you don't, you go along. Then you think you're doing all wrong. When you hear the woogie song of the woogie woogie boogie man. <laughs> I have shared some of my paranormal experiences before on various podcasts when they've had like listener features I've sent them in. And some of my personal paranormal experiences have been featured on the podcast Euphemet, Anything Ghost, and This Podcast is Haunted, which are all great shows, by the way. So if you're into spooky things and you love personal paranormal stories, I recommend them all, especially Euphemet, which is beautifully produced and has so much depth and love put into it. Jim Perry, the host, is a fantastic podcaster and a friend of mine. I hope to get him on the upcoming season of Future Saint. Anyway, whenever I do share my own brushes with weirdness, uh, I'm often asked why I'm not scared by these experiences. Like Allison pointed out, Paul and I went back to the place where we saw that weird figure with the glowing eyes, and that's how you end up dead in horror movies. But real life isn't fiction, and who understands that better than a fiction writer, you know? That first date I went on with Paul, when we explored the old abandoned school and saw that strange figure staring at us, that was also my first date. Ever. And I want to tell you about my second date, when Paul and I returned to the boarded-up elementary school to look for the Mothman, <laughs> as we called him. I mean, you already know we didn't find the Mothman a second time. It was definitely weird, though. It was, uh, it was disorienting. In the darkness, we walked these pathways, these routes between buildings that we recognized from our childhood, and yet they were also entirely different from what we remembered. Not only because of the obvious things, you know, it was night, time had passed, the structure had decayed and changed, but places we remembered and ways we remembered turned out to be wrong. Like, we recalled them incorrectly. Our minds had built these false paths of memory, and it made me aware of how little reality adheres to what we think we know. And somewhere along the way, while we were exploring these old buildings that were both familiar and foreign to us, Paul took my hand and held it. And no one had ever done that with me, <laughs> at least not since I was a kid, when Jeff would sometimes hold my hand if no one else could see. But you already know how things turned out with Jeff. I was in the middle of a divorce at the time, I was leaving my first husband, who was emotionally abusive, and I had just taken a shot with someone else, someone who I loved very much, and that person shot me down angrily, offended by the mere suggestion that someone like him might want to date someone like me. And I had resigned myself to the idea that if I didn't want to be abused, I would have to go through my life alone. because. I'm not the kind of woman who anyone can love. But there I was, with this sweet, funny, kind, attractive man, and we were exploring this shared landscape together, this map of memory which we could both just about follow, <laughs> and he was holding my hand. 
Eventually we made our way through the buildings of the school and out onto the playfield behind it. And the stars were out, so we laid down in the grass and looked up at the sky. And Paul told me about the night skies he'd seen in Cuba and Haiti, and he didn't seem to be in any kind of hurry to let go of me. So you see, if I'd been afraid to go back to the place where I'd encountered that apparition on our first date, then, you know, who knows? Maybe there would have been no second date. Or our second date would have gone so differently that today there would be no Paul and me. So maybe I'm not afraid of spooky things because one of my first real experiences with weirdness led to my first real experience with love. With seeing myself for the first time in my entire life as a person who could be loved. So no bad vibes from ghosties. I mean, we don't even know what ghosts are after all. You know, maybe ghosts are nothing but memories. And some memories are sweet. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and if you like the show, please give it a follow on your favorite podcast app. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review, since this will help tweak the algorithm and allow me to connect with more curious weirdos like yourself. Be sure you check out Alison Epstein's absolutely fantastic novel, A Tip for the Hangman, pre-order their next book, Let the Dead Bury the Dead, and do yourself a huge favor and sign up for their substack, Dirtbags Through the Ages. I promise you'll be glad you did. If you want more stuff from the inside of my head, read the book The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made and I really want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components came from the YouTube channel What Could Go Wrong. The musical interlude was Boogie Woogie Boogeyman by the Bryan Sisters in the public domain. Additional music included The Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Additional music included Unfolding Mirrors by Shane Ivers. If you'd like more information about the podcast including ways to contact me and my socials, visit futuresaintpod.com. Outro music is Running the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. I'm Libby Grant and until until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. Oh.